0: My name is Claire Press, and this is Wardrobe Crisis, the podcast that unzips fashion's issues.
1: Do you mind if I move the microphone? I just, I need to lounge. <laughs>
0: Devotion, darling.
1: you. I think as humans, we are major forces to be also reckoned with. And I think Creativity always flourishes when there is any type of crisis.
2: That's been the absolute pleasure of, is watching talented people who have skills far and beyond mine come together and work collectively.
1: Einstein always said, nature has all the answers. Just look to nature, it has all the answers.
2: Just because I happened to be able to source them easiest, I guess. I was buying original wool jackets from the 1950s. I was buying them at Portobello Market and a one man's rubbish
1: is another man's gold. For me, it was about age, it was about the attitude of people, and it's about how they're wearing the clothes, why they're wearing the clothes, and capturing a bit of their wisdom and empowering people to look at aging differently.
0: Join me every week as we talk ethics, sustainability, and the business and madness of fashion. From who made your clothes, to how they impact on the environment, to the politics of personal style, we are so hot right now. Hello, dear listeners. I'm so happy to be back with Series 2 of the Wardrobe Crisis podcast. I've missed you, and I have a very good feeling about 2018 already. I'm sure you guys are doing some amazing things with your slow fashion journeys, and I'm really looking forward to hearing about them. You can tag me on Instagram and Twitter, at Mrs. Press. I have news too, which I've been itching to share. As some of you may know, I spent the early years of my career in fashion magazines at Vogue, and now I'm back. I've just been made Vogue Australia's sustainability editor-at-large, which is a bit of a first. How cool is it that the editor-in-chief, Edwina McCann, is throwing her weight behind sustainable and ethical fashion? It's pretty cool. I am excited. So I can't wait to share with you all the stuff that we're going to be doing over the coming months. American listeners, if you've been hanging out to get a copy of the Wardrobe Crisis book, your time has finally come. It's out in the US on February the 20th. Now down to business. A lovely business it is too. Our first guest for Series 2 is Gossier Piatek, the fabulous force behind the label Koto. Gossier is a delight and this is a beautiful conversation in which we start off talking about minimalism, and how she's going as a dedicated minimalist living with a man who is the opposite. We talk about her life and the pressures of running a business between London, where she now lives, and New Zealand, where Koto is based. She shares about her early life as a refugee from Poland, and what it was like for her family to arrive in New Zealand knowing no one, and how Gossier grew up as a Greenie. The story of how she began her label is fascinating and very unusual. And I'll let her explain exactly how she began. You'll hear how she built the label according to her values, her interest in art, architecture, craftsmanship, landscape and travel. And we delve into how she manufactures. Her thing is transparency. And Gossia is one of the only people I know who can make supply chains sound sexy, but seriously, there's something very fresh and inviting about how Gossia humanises this conversation around who makes our clothing and textiles. Koto's fabrics are all exclusive and designed in-house. So what that means is they might spend a whole year developing a particular weave of cotton or organic denim or lately wool, which is a new addition. It's really slow fashion and it's really considered and it's absolutely not designed to be obsolete season in, season out. The label is a pioneering one when it comes to using fair trade certified cotton and GOTS approved dyes and mindful manufacturing in general. Everything is so sustainable, even down to the trims and the packaging. And I know that when I first started working in this space, it was always KOTO, KOTO, you have to know about KOTO, which sounds like the lyrics for a bad poem or song. And that's not what I meant it to sound like. But <laughs> God, I'm going to make a little song out of that. Anyway, you got me KOTO what was I going to say? I was going to say something so smart and just got derailed. Oh well, never mind. Enjoy this interview. I hope you enjoy it as much as I enjoyed recording it. Gossier is a treasure. Welcome, Gossier. Thank you. I'm delighted to be doing this with you. Oh, great.
2: Welcome back to Sydney via London and New Zealand. Yeah, so nice. I love it here.
0: So let's talk a little bit about London. When did you move there?
2: Well, it was now maybe four years ago. I still don't permanently live there because I met my partner in India whilst I was sampling the range in a hotel for one day and we fell madly in love and decided... In one day? Yeah, and decided to have a baby over Skype. Um <laughs> and thought that was a good idea. And then four months later we met up in London via Indonesia and um, I fell pregnant just after Christmas. And, then, and this was like, I mean, your son is now three, is that right? Yeah, yeah. So he's got a very full career in London. He's a film director. And I have a very full career in New Zealand. So we travel back and forth. So we only arrived in New Zealand as a whole family two days ago. Yeah. Crazy and, town. Yeah, so my son's school changes every six months. And or more like every four months. I travel back and forth every three or four months. It's,
0: Hectic. Mm. The global fashion industry is kind of peopled by peripatetic... Creatives, People mm-hmm. do move around a lot, but I don't think that they have to juggle being based in different countries and running a business yeah, Why, as tactically as you do. Yeah, to
2: centred over the edge, I think. Yeah, that's been crazy with a little baby. We'll get yeah. back onto that, but yeah. let's just talk about the business. Mm-hmm. So for
0: those listeners who might not be aware of the wonder that is Koto, mm.
2: can you tell us a bit about the label? Well, I started the brand 11 years ago with a very... I never studied fashion so for me it was a very clear I wanted to start a business that created change from the moment it was conceived to whatever it was and I was thinking do I go into food or do I go into I was just tossing up so many ideas and my partner at the time was a graphic designer and I met up with a friend and she said why don't you start a fair trade organic cotton clothing brand it was very specific and I was like what does that even mean and um, 11 years ago I googled it. and Get out. Yeah. I love this story. <laughs> and um, I thought okay I can do this and I thought wow this is really fascinating this idea that you know and you can trace something from seed to garment. I just was really fascinated by it and we started off with a kind of a Lux Basics brand really. And, that, and that now it's evolved into denim and knitwear and and the exciting development for next season is that we're introducing new fibres. So that's really how it, how it started. But how extraordinary, and I haven't heard of anyone else talk about a fashion
0: brand that they've started in quite this way because you began purely with values definitely. before you began with this idea of, I want to be in fashion. Yeah,
2: it was all values-driven, definitely. And I was always interested in design. That was definitely something that came naturally to me. So whether it went into... Building or interiors or even food or cafe or you know restaurants. I think. Fascinating. I found it. It can cross over. Okay, so let's talk about the name. Mm-hmm. What is Koto? Koto or Kowtow. I say Koto, but most people would pronounce it Kowtow. In front of the emperor in China, um, they would go on their hands and knees and bow with their forehead touching the ground as a sign of respect. And um, when I saw the word, I thought, "Oh, this is it's great! Like it's got an." Kind of even though it's Chinese, it's got this kind of Asian flavor, and I've always loved this kind of Japanese minimalism idea. And kotoclothing.com was available. Very important. It's so practical. So practical. But also, there's Everything a kind has of,
0: pockets. So <laughs> love. But there is a poetic element to it, too, because you're talking about
2: respecting supply chains, respecting. Mm fibers respecting people Mm, yes of course yeah so it was just and it was a a word that not everybody knew in our language it was a a word that's almost been expired you know you'd read it maybe in a novel or and you know to this day living years on I can't imagine it being any other name that's quite nice because I didn't name it after myself so it's nice and we haven't even changed the logo actually the font I just really like it it was meant to be and we change everything, you know, how it is in fashion. Like, you change everything every six months. So It's amazing that this has got longevity. You mentioned your love for
0: Japanese minimalism. Mm. When I think of koto, I think minimalist, beautiful, restrained, a muted palette, mm. which I love from a distance because I'm, as you know, hectic, covered in silver glitter woman. I <laughs> <laughs> actually have a beautiful shirt dress that's koto, but I would wear it with lots of extra bedazzles yeah yeah <laughs> this is a question that often foxes me in the sustainability space because minimalism is the kind of code that everyone loves within this mm. space there's not a lot of sustainability advocates who are aesthetic maximalists
2: well it's so interesting isn't it I mean we personally I I'm a minimalist I don't have much in my wardrobe I have a very small home I don't have much on my walls I don't miss it and when I met my partner in London he's a maximalist like it's insane I mean I said to my friend one morning I said I'm really bored and she said don't worry there's probably a whole bunch of guardian supplements sitting on the floorboards that you can just read all day and get old recipes out of (laughs) and I looked around and there was just like they were like snaking around the skirting boards this is my life yeah so your partner (laughs) Thomas is a film director Mm. and obviously a collector of just an insane (laughs) all things things, like everything you know shells and jars I mean it gets bizarre you know little boxes with safety pins and a a dime in them yeah so open drawers find collection of coins from somewhere you're never going back to oh of course yeah there's bags of them so we I've actually decluttered his whole house (laughs) and um, mm-hmm. colour-coded his books, which he thinks is ridiculous because he can't find anything, which is true.
0: What about those people who turn the book spine inside so that you only see the minimalist outer Oh, I haven't even seen that. I've seen it in like, World of Interiors.
2: Oh, wow. So That's you never want level. to know
0: what's in there because it's, it's all about
2: the aesthetics. <laughs> That's brilliant. Just know. That's brilliant. So, but what's the beauty of minimalism to you? Well, for me, it's Headspace. So for me I feel happy, it affects my mood So when I'm in a place where there isn't too much to look at Which is the opposite of how you or Thomas might feel Is I feel completely at calm and ease And I feel like stress is lifting off my shoulders And that's probably why I'm not designed for really crazy urban city environments But I love Sydney because you can have both, you know and I love seeing the horizon, I love seeing the ocean, and I'm very driven by colour, which is interesting, that goes through into our work. So we work with colour really closely, so we develop all our own colours and our own yarns, and you know, we go into quite a lot of depth in that, So, and our clothes tend to come in colour blocking. I think we are, at the moment, we are going through a rethink about how we do design, and... At the moment, the very minimal range will become our Koto building block. So it will be our simple, everyday, weekend uniform clothing. And then we want to create a higher-end range where um, we are looking into embroidery and we are looking into different buttons. And I think that... I spied a ruffle. Honestly, yes, if I did, you did rahul. I was like, I've seen you, yeah. you exist. Yeah, and I think that also comes from um, having a bigger team. So having a, now I employ over, you know, I think there's 25 of us now and the design team's just doubled, so we've got more capacity to create more time into each garment.
0: But I don't want to imply that we're talking about in any way starkness or anything jarringly overly monastic or simple, because that isn't what Koto is, it's actually about the beauty of restraint, but without this, it's soft it's not like you look at it and go, I can't live in that world if you're not a purist
2: Yeah, I mean I think we're very arts driven in the way we approach design, so, and we're always driven by the same, you know we look at Tada Ando for architecture or we go, I've just been to Palm Springs, so we look at mid-century homes and the restraint that's there but there's still shape. kind of, the shape and there's still the kind of There's design in it, you know, and that's how we look at a a sleeve. So everything has this kind of deliberate aspect to it. We don't just go, oh, put a pocket on it. We talk about that pocket for days. You know, let's make it, are we going to have it bigger or smaller? And I think as you go down a centimetre, let's create the hem a little bit more oversized to create drama, to match the shape of the shirt. You know, it's we talk about it like a piece of art. We don't just say we need to create a white shirt it's quite a lengthy conversation that's been going on for 11 years talk about a pocket
0: for days is adorable
2: yeah and and that's what I feel excited by I think I love design, yeah. but
0: also the utilitarian or the practical is important, isn't it? Do you want? To yeah, talk a I little? think I
2: get that from my mother. She always says to me, oh, "I like that dress, but it doesn't have any pockets," and I just feel like I'm failing her if I don't put pockets in it. <laughs> yeah, I'm. I'm a ex- practicality. Totally, I'm like so practical. I mean, I think it kills my partner because he's such a dreamer you know we're very different you can't yeah. have
0: two people the same in a relationship that works
2: yeah. i don't think yeah. you can
0: have people who look just like their dogs and that seems to work i always see that on the street yeah. <laughs> don't you always always. People who are like the bulldog man the bulldog dog. Yeah. yeah But i reckon in a partnership it's easier to deal with when people are very different because yeah. they balance each other out
2: yeah we're very different i mean Do you yeah. like how i brought that up to dogs in the street
0: <laughs> but it's true you mentioned your mama would say to you, but where are the pockets, where's the practicality? Mm. Do you want to rewind a little bit and tell mm-hmm. us a bit about how you began,
2: mm-hmm. how
0: you got to began? Mm-hmm. So you were born in Poland?
2: Yeah, so we were... You moved when you were seven? Yeah, as refugees in 1985 to Italy. Um, we escaped Poland, so you weren't allowed to leave back then. Communism, it was before 89? That's right, yeah. So it was a closed border country and Chernobyl exploded and... That was in Russia, but mum, mum had enough. There wasn't food on the shelves in the supermarket. You got a little ticket. There was queues to line up to the people that gave you the food. It was very limited. And um, Mum's quite adventurous, and she pretended that she was in a car racing club. And um, so the government would issue her with a passport, and we had we had a temporary. Departure card out of Poland, and so we we drove and pretended we were going on holiday to this car rally. She, I don't know where this even came from. Dad had a passport because he was a sailor, and us kids had them. So when we got to Italy, we we went into a, a refugee camp for two years, which it was amazing. We had our own house on the beach. We ate pizza and pasta, and the Italian community just welcomed us with open arms. It makes me
0: cry to hear a positive refugee story when you think of the context of now, a million people on the move and being turned away at every gate.
2: Uh, I think it, it just there wasn't that flood. I mean, it really was such a different time, whereas now people just don't know what to do. They feel overwhelmed by the masses. Yeah, mm. I feel overwhelmed in Europe. Mm. And um, So then and
0: from Italy, what, what happened? Did you stay the, there a
2: while? Two years, waiting for either Canada... New Zealand or Australia were accepting refugees, and finally New Zealand accepted us, and we flew to Wellington. So, um, how old were
0: you when you got there? I was
2: seven, and that's then. It wasn't such a positive story actually for my parents. It was quite stressful. Um, New Zealand, I think, in 1987, didn't have the infrastructure to know what to do with us, but Mum. How in, was
0: your language?
2: We didn't have English. My brother had English because he had private tuition, so he was the one that would... He's eight years older, so, he was a teenager. But so hard on him, such an impressionable time to be leaving everything behind and pimply-faced teenager coming into a new culture. It's so full-on. But, you know, Dad, he was a sailor, so he worked for Sea Lord. He scrubbed the deck for a couple of years. They realised he was actually very bright. Um, the New Zealand... Fishing industry made him reset all his exams. His nautical schooling in Poland wasn't recognised. The usual story,
0: over and over. Even though
2: he'd sailed boats all around the world, Um, but anyway, they realised that was. He's a clever man, and um, within a few years he became captain of one of the big industrial fishing vessels. So we had a very quick rise into comfort. He yeah.
0: has deep-rooted,
2: sustainably-minded values, doesn't he? I think so. Yeah, you wouldn't know because he's a sailor. Like he's. But a, didn't he do
0: something with nets? to Yeah, try he's to... a
2: practical guy. So I really love having philosophical conversations with him. I think he's a very he is a conscientious person. So he was working for the company that he was working for, and. Um, he invented a fishing net that would let the little fish out and only let the big fish in. And he presented that to the board and within a few weeks he got made redundant. So they didn't take it up? No, of course oh, not. I thought they did. No, of course oh. not. So he got made redundant. So they didn't earlier. like
0: that he was being disruptive?
2: No. It's a big industry with a lot of money to be made. So it's why create change when you can just pillage? <laughs> <sighs> So, so
0: where do you think that you're, I mean, that's an extraordinary story. Yeah. Where in that tale do your values come from? Because coming forward again and thinking that you wanted to start a business, but you didn't really know
2: exactly what, but you knew how and why. Um, I think, well, mum and dad, with their Polish practicality, I was always taught that You turn the lights off and they're like, we're getting an induction cooker because it goes from zero to whatever degrees in two seconds and that's going to save us energy. And we've put solar panels on our roof to heat our pool and then it's like... They do it without even thinking about it. Mum makes bread and she makes her own ricotta because it tastes better. She goes to the farmer's market to get olives because they taste better. And you would never hear them talk about sustainability or ethics. But the way they live is actually completely in line with my own values. And on the weekends we would always go walking in the hills as a family. Wellington's beautiful. Beautiful. Um, Physically extraordinary, isn't it? Yeah. Dramatic. Dramatic. And I think that came from that too. And then I started snowboarding quite a lot. So I went and would go to North America or Canada and I started, you know, I think that really had an effect on me, maybe in the minimalism world as well, just that sense of white space. I was going to
0: say, because that's what is extraordinary. And I'd always
2: want to get away from the runs from all the people and I'd always go back country and just hearing me doing turns in the snow... And seeing it, it was like spiritual experiences. I've never felt so happy probably since than doing that. That was to me the, you know, I felt like I was like, yeah, I'm doing well in life. This that's, is... <laughs> that's
0: glorious actually, isn't yeah. it? That's also poetic, that mm-hmm. idea of the swish, swish and the feeling mm-hmm. and just the
2: sparkling. Yeah, it's amazing. Nothing interrupting it. Nothing and everything. All your worries this dissipating, you know. It just, that's, I guess, people get that through eating well or exercise or maybe their career their job if they earn the perfect career for them but you know that feeling is pretty amazing yeah A sort of sharp point
0: or the art of getting to that point you can get it through meditation i hear yeah i didn't yeah <laughs> i just no. downloaded headspace have you got that app? yeah i did, Someone the, I did me one this is the way i did
2: oh my god stop because i did one and now i get an email every day going have you forgotten to do it again <laughs> And I thought, God, this is amazing. I only have to do this for two minutes. I feel great. And And then I don't know That that went by fast and then never did it again. That's terrible. Yeah, yeah, it's exactly what I did.
0: Okay, so I want to read out a quote from you, Gossier, Mm -hmm. which pins down exactly how you view sustainability in fashion. And it is. To me, sustainability is being mindful. First and foremost, it's about making and growing something in an ethical and sustainable manner or recycling and reusing if not. And the second part is, I also want to make sure that everyone in the production chain is being rewarded fairly for what they do without being exploited. Mm -hmm. And that's off the KOTO website. Mm -hmm. Talk to me a little bit about that. I mean, they're big things, but first of all, this idea of being mindful.
2: Well... I mean, for us in the in the workplace, it goes beyond the clothing. So we are just about to um, open our flagship store, which is exciting, and we in Wellington, and we've put our workroom above it. And we've engaged with architects that have inspired and creatively want to work with the sustainability. And we're working with Rufus Knight, who's done all the lonely stores, but he's picked our project on because he's also excited about the challenge of this. And it's great. It's like being mindful is easy when you just eliminate everything else. So she comes to us with only four options rather than 100 because we just don't even want to know about the oh others. Oh, my God,
0: the beauty of less choice because actually too much choice is one of the biggest problems in
2: modern life. It's amazing. So you go. You can use the New Zealand eucalyptus for the slats and we can use Osmo oil because of these certifications and if we want to darken up the grain and the wood, I've got the stain. Oh, well that's easy, so do you want to go light or dark? I love it, I'm like great, yeah perfect, and we know the guy, John who milled the wood, who cut the tree down I'm like this is amazing, she's like I speak to John every day, and then the countertop, we've got a huge counter it's three metres long, it's a big space to the shop 200 square metres, and we've engaged, we've been doing collaborations with a ceramic artist, Gidon Bing in Auckland and he's designed all the tiles for the countertop, which we're going to grout in so, and then the sides of the counter are also a sustainable material. The carpets that we're getting are from Cavalier Brenworth, which is you know quite an old school New Zealand company, but they make beautiful wool carpets. But they've just created a line of carpets that's made from um, recycled nylon, so plastic bottles. Just amazing. It feels like wool. It's insane the technology they've developed, and the sofas are made by Simon James in New Zealand, and that's another amazing. Gorgeous interior designer and you know furniture designer in New Zealand and Auckland that we've paired up with, and it's just not that hard. I and mean, we've got these um, beautiful paper lanterns coming in, and it's those round balls that you get with the wood that goes through them. You know you could probably get them IKEA for five bucks, but these are like the really oversized and super beautiful, and they're from a, a store in London called Twenty Twenty One, and they did a collaboration with the guy who designed the Olympic torch. And um, he went to back to the village in Japan where that traditional method is made, Oh, wowee. and we've bought them from there. And it's just such a cool story. And you just think, just this idea of being mindful for me now—it's like going to a restaurant where there's five things, or the guy tells me what to order. It's like this is great. Oh my god, my favorite thing is when the guy tells you what to order. Oh yeah, it's too hard. I don't know. I don't know. But they know, know. But just...
0: that's also because they yeah. know. So you're deferring to the expert. It's Sphere
2: of knowledge, why not say Bring it on, share it A 100% I totally do that now I just leave it in their hands And um, yeah so I think for us I feel like with this new venture of going into Retail and really Putting in a lot of effort into our workroom And making it a special space I think, I don't know It's just been very natural, very natural
0: On that subject of mindfulness And our lack of headspace mutually mm. <laughs> mm. Maybe we need to go back to the app. How are you structuring life now that you're living in London with a three-year-old?
2: Mm-hmm.
0: Your business is still based in Wellington. You're mm-hmm. opening a new store in Wellington.
2: Mm-hmm.
0: We are having this interview in Sydney where your PR is mm-hmm. based for Australia.
2: Mm-hmm. So what happened was when I met my partner I and I was having a baby, I needed to employ more people. So our team has almost tripled since then. And... I've been fortunate enough to employ some really amazing, creative, big thinkers, and they have generated more income for the business to then employ more people. So it's I also like the have power
0: of letting go a bit. Scary, but ama- good.
2: Amazing, amazing. Not micromanaging. I re- highly recommend it to everyone. And then just trusting people really, and and really honing in on their what they want to do, and their skills, and what they're good at. So, being a good boss, <laughs> but I think that's it. And I've got an amazing um, head of creative operations, so she runs the show for me. Yeah, so when I'm in London, I'm still the creative director, so I still need to be in in the design presentations, and it is difficult with London because 9 p.m. is 8 a.m. in New Zealand, so working from 9 to 2 a.m. and then waking up at 6 with a child is it is backbreaking, literally. And that's why we're back here for the summer to kind of give me some respite and tackle that. I just kind of think any any of these issues are actually they can all be ironed out. I don't see them as permanent anymore. I feel like everything has a solution. Yeah. Yeah. That's empowering. Yeah. I bet people are listening going, "Yes. <laughs>
0: <laughs> well, you're living proof. You're making it work."
2: Exactly. Day by and day. The, and the business is growing, you know. We're In over 200 accounts worldwide, we show the range in Paris and London and Tokyo and um, Los Angeles, New York and all through Australia and New Zealand every year. And the vision for the business from day dot was to have it as a global business. So um, me living globally and gaining inspiration and there's real value of being in, in London, in Europe, because fashion there is so heritage driven and it's so beautifully crafted that it's, it's a real inspiration and a challenge for us, you know, just to really, I now want to be like them, you know, that's, that's the hunger, you know, I don't want it just to be another white shirt, you know, I want something that feels like there's a lot of craftsmanship that's gone into it. Let's talk about craftsmanship because mm. you make, let's talk about how you make and wear. The production chain starts in India and we still have two factories in India, so one in Kolkata and one in Mumbai. The Mumbai factory deals with all our knitwear and our wovens and the Kolkata factory deals with all the basics, so the cotton jersey basics. And the reason we've kept it there is because the farms are in India, the cotton farms, and the factory has a direct relationship with the farmers to have a transparent production chain.
0: So you talk about seed to garment what is seed to garment for koto
2: this was something that I was very passionate about from the beginning so I wanted to know that whatever I made whatever product it was and it is fashion that from the beginning it was traceable and right for the environment and right for the people quite simple really like you don't have to be a scientist to figure this out and so I went and I've gone to straight to the farmer level and our production manager's been to farmer level and our uh, head creator's been there and we, we document the chain. So it's just fascinating. You know, these are small-scale farmers. They have one to two acres of land and they practice organic farming techniques. So one of the practices they do is they grow two rows of um, cotton and one row of lentils. One to two acres of small... Oh,
0: lentils. I knew about... To put nitrogen right.
2: back in the soil. So, one to two acres is very small. It's about, you know, a few garages worth. It's not much land. And you're sitting there in someone's home. They've got cotton buds piled up in the back of their house. It's like a mud house. And they're telling you about what fair trade means to them. And they're showing me their bank balances and their bank books. And they're saying, we received our premium and we spent it on this. And we, we did this for the community. And... You know, it just, the nice thing about the fair trade model is that they have a network of people around them. So they can creatively come up with solutions and they are empowered to do that themselves. They're not bought into a company. So they're not buying into genetically modified, for example, Monsanto seed. Well,
0: the, the corporatisation of this stuff dehumanises it, doesn't it? It becomes a faceless conglomerate. That exactly. That you can't win. Well, you as become the small you guy. become
2: a slave. So they will give you pesticides to put on your land, at a cost, of course. And also the next only a certain year,
0: kind of pesticide produced by Monsanto will work with that genetically modified crop. So you are in. Yeah, you're yeah. basically bonded to using it.
2: And I've read it, just a really interesting article this morning, which I want to read to you. It was so interesting. So monsanto promised indian farmers that the cotton would reduce the amount of pesticides farmers need to buy to control pests increased harvest you know all the magic words and the summary was from this investigation yields declined secondary pests emerged um the price of cotton seed rose and farmers lost the option to buy non-gm seeds i mean it's like the complete reverse effect so And You know, you hear it, so they they have to buy a bunch of pesticides, they put it onto their land, the next season the crop requires double the pesticides, but you don't get the pesticides for free, you have to buy them, you don't have the money to buy them, so you get a loan from the pesticide company with interest, and then they cannot afford to pay off their interest, so this is why there is also... uh, Statistic of farmer suicides in the industry.
0: I will just um, use this moment for a shameless plug for the book Wardrobe Crisis because there's a big section on organic cotton production versus conventionally grown cotton production in which I tell the story via Catherine Hamnett of Mm -hmm. how dire this stuff is when it comes to Monsanto's hold over India and the cotton belt Mm -hmm. and farmer suicides and poisonings and poisoning the land, poisoning children, it's really intense mm, Yeah, and it's corrupt.
2: Yeah, exactly. And I don't have the answer to say to the world, you know, like, could we just survive on organic farming practices and organic food? I don't know that. I don't, I don't know if the population has tipped over the edge. I have no idea. Well, I think but I know that would say it's not possible because there's not enough land. But it, I don't but know. But I either. don't know. I don't know that. But all I know is that I feel that if I just do my bit, and that the, if I'm selling a product, I want to know that the, that family's being looked after. They've got food. They're producing lentils. They're not having to deal with chemicals, and then I can make clothing and, and without and sell feeling it. culpable. Yeah, and I just think, well, that, that's my bit. That's my bit. I'm not doing more harm, you know. So what's allowed you to do that? It's fair trade, because you can rely on the fact
0: that fair trade certification means that the cotton that you're buying has been produced that way.
2: It's a real big network of non-profit organisations. So the Fair Trade Labouring Organisation comes into it. GOTS, which is the Global Organic Textile Standard, there are so many more when i went there i realized how complicated it was and how many people were involved in helping these farmers i mean i was listing in my in my diary like these are the main groups that we list but i felt like there was just so many passionate people and i was a bit blown away because i just thought that india was just corrupt that i thought everyone's just out to make a buck and i said to them well, why are you growing organic cotton i don't why are you doing this you know And they looked at me, and I had a translator, and they said, and I knew it was genuine, and they said, because this makes sense. Like, we don't want our kids to suffer from the chemical poisoning. And I thought, oh, because this is why I'm doing it, but I'm not connected with you. I'm in New Zealand, I'm not not connected in growing the cotton, but that's exactly the reason why I would grow something like that. And it was so, I just felt like, oh... This makes sense. God, it's These people back are to exact- practicality. It's completely in line with my views. There's nothing different between us. There was nothing different. That you're a cotton farmer in India, you still share exactly the same values as me, and that values have nothing to do with creed, colour, social status. It's exactly the same. I thought that was it was a bit of an awakening moment for me. Yeah. That's beautiful. Yeah. It's it exactly the same. It's like we're the same. Yeah, I want to hang out with you for the next two months now. you did? (laughs) Well, I spent a little bit of time there, but I've been on How often do you visit? Well, since I've had Laker, not often, but before Laker I was visiting every six months and now we have a production manager that visits every six months. And we also have a, um, a contractor who is British, but her husband is Indian. So she travels for us there quite frequently, yeah, every month just to check up on production and all that manual, boring stuff, that's the same for everyone in the industry. You know, is the stitch the right length?
0: (laughs) But how important is it to keep that connection regular that you are or people from the business are, Kotoites are on the ground, making those connections,
2: keeping them strong? Huge, huge. Yeah, really big. And I think it goes down not just on the factory level, it comes to me being here in Sydney and me visiting retailers around the world and we've just realised this, how as a global brand, we've just got to all travel a lot more and phone and email and Skype are just not the way I feel like, they're not the be-all and end-all of communication, which I thought it was and um, I think it's, to me, it's about face-to-face now and I guess I've been inspired by my friends in London who have really great jobs and they just get on a plane and go to Milan for the day for a meeting because that's what we well, can do. do it from London. It's really hard for But Australia. they don't pick up the phone. Yeah. They go there. And yeah. it's still a mission. You yeah. still gotta to go to Heathrow and you still gotta get through customs. But they do it. And I just thought, yeah, we need to do more But of I that. always
0: worry about the eco footprint of flying too much, especially from Australia, I, but I still do it.
2: Yeah, I know we're looking at offsetting our carbon at the moment. So there's some amazing initiatives in New Zealand to do that with.
0: Can we talk about New Zealand? Because I feel mm. like New Zealand is ruling the world, not <laughs> not in a strange colonial way, but in a way of setting an example that we need to follow. Jacinda Ardern made me happy. So happy. She's my age. She's 37. So Jacinda Ardern's just been, at the time mm. of this conversation, perhaps, I don't know, a few weeks ago, mm-hmm. made New Zealand's Prime Minister. Mm-hmm. She is... Thirty-seven. Mm-hmm. She is rad. She looks rad. She's cool. She has said that she wants New Zealand to
2: lead on climate change. Mm. She, what does she say? She seems
0: so personable. I watch her speak and
2: she I think said, finally you can someone would sense. You can be hard with compassion. I think, you know, don't quote me on that, but it was like that gist. And I thought, yes, like you, you can be both, you know. You can be convincing and you can be powerful, but you can do it with compassion, you know. I thought you're cool i like you (laughs) it's cool to have a woman yeah in power and she's a dj is she shut up yeah do you want to see her djing yes stop it now
0: she's like the coolest woman on the planet too she's number 11 in the world's coolest
2: women she's a dj
0: (laughs) this is another one of those moments on this podcast when i wish that we were videoing it so that you could see what I'm seeing, which is that Garcia has just shown me a photograph of Jacinda Arden DJing in St Jerome's Lameway Festival, punching the air on the decks. <laughs> I'm not looking a dag.
2: Looking cool. She should be wearing koto. Because she's a DJ. Does she? She does support New Zealand design. So I've seen her a lot on, um, to the lead up of this Wearing New Zealand designers. So, yeah, we, we need to send her some coat on.
0: The reason why I mentioned her was because I wanted to ask you if my view is in any way accurate that New Zealand's just a little bit better at getting it when it comes to sustainability and ethics. No. No, really? Because I have this vision of. Land full of vintners no. <laughs> growing organic vegetables. Really? You're shaking your head. No. You're bursting no. my
2: bubble. No, I think marketing wise, I think New Zealand is very good at explaining their image. I think Taika just got some slack in the press for exactly saying what I'm saying because he's like the New Zealander of the year and he, when someone asked him exactly the same question. Clean and green, is it? Yeah, and so I think we're really good at that image, that marketing image for tourism and Lord of the Rings but it's a film and it's been edited that that's the country and I think because we've got four million people which is hardly anyone really we're lucky enough that we haven't damaged everything but our waterways aren't clean our farming practices aren't great you hear about it all the time I'll, I'll go up north and hang out with my friends and say let's go swim in that lake and they say no you can't it's polluted you can't go in there but it looks perfect. And they're like, no, you, you can't go swimming in there. Oh,
0: we talked about so. this in with Vincent Stanley in an episode last season where he talked about the hidden damage that's done to the environment. And he said in the 70s, when there was less regulation and the air, was visibly toxic, as it is in places now like Beijing. It was harder to escape the fact that we're ruining our natural environment. But now a lot of this stuff is hidden. You can look
2: at the perfect pristine coastline in Sydney and go,
0: everything looks fine.
2: Exactly. Not even know that Chevron plans to drill the bite. Exactly. So it's like, I am being a complete pessimist. I don't want to, like detract everyone from coming to New Zealand because it's insanely beautiful and I'm about to take my partner on a South Island trip to show him how insanely it is for me the epitome of, of natural beauty. There's nowhere else I've ever been that's as beautiful for sure. But I think we're not a progressive society. I don't feel it. I don't feel it with the city council regulations. It just all feels a little bit dated and not... Yeah, not progressive. I don't know. That's just my general kind of gut feeling from it. Just, just been up, just opening the store and kind of the, the hoops and things that we've had to jump and some of the ideas that we had, which I think are just so rad and they haven't, they don't want to do it because of council regulations or, you know, and that kind of goes into I guess the beauty of architecture and where the landscape's going in terms of visual man-made beauty. I don't think we're very progressive with that, but. You never know, like we're just into Arden. I, I think we've had a, I'm not too familiar with New Zealand politics, but maybe we've had a, a government that hasn't focused in on environmental issues. What role do you
0: think fashion has to play in trying to drum up more of a care factor towards protecting the environment? Because I always think, often people think, oh well fashion Nothing. It's clothes in it it's what you look like it doesn't really have a part to play mm. but as a giant part of the global pollution problem as a giant global business it does have a part to play and i think that designers like you do a lot to help swing conversation towards yeah. this is this stuff's cool to care is cool
2: yeah and i went to the um copenhagen fashion summit Have you been? No. You need to go. I'm desperate to go. I think you would really like it. And um, they have some really great speakers. I was a little bit cynical when I went there. And I came out feeling pretty positive. And there is a designer in New York called Eileen Fisher. Ah, yes. She's a legend. Doing great work. And she's amazing. So she had a mountain of clothing. And she didn't know what to do with it. Because they decided to have a service in their stores where you bring back your unwanted Eileen Fisher. And I don't know whether he get a discount or something, I don't know. They, but they resell it, don't they? Well, they had a mountain of it, and she didn't know what to do with it. She had storage lockers full of this stuff, and she was like, what am I doing? And um, they decided to put this out into a as a university project, into a New York university, and say, if you come up with the idea, you can run this. And a girl in her early 20s came up with this recycling, upcycling idea, but in a really modern way so they've started up a factory in New York where they recut the clothing and remake it and there's a they've rebranded it as a different sub-brand of Isling Fisher and they resell it in the stores so it was just such a clever way of isn't it of creating but they created a brand out of it so it wasn't just a token rack in the shop that looked vintage I think they re. You know, they recreated the shapes that were modern for for the time. And also Um,
0: not having to say the only solution is to recycle fibres, whether mechanically or chemically, mm, and start from scratch, saying uh actually, no, we can Mm. do something more innovative that has fewer steps, so lesser impacts.
2: Yeah, that was fantastic. I really, really enjoyed listening to that. Yeah, and I think for us, we're having this conversation at the moment, like, do we introduce man-made fibres? Because what happens to them... And I know you can now create nylon out of, say, fishing nets in the ocean or plastic bottles. I met another guy at the Fashion Summit who can create swimwear fabric. And I thought, wow, this is great. But then it's like, what what happens to that? I want to give it a go because I think swimwear you can't create out of cotton. Um, But then it's like, we need to think about this 360 life cycle, which is what the whole Fashion Summit was about, this idea of circular design. So what happens to it at the end? and I think, yeah, I just think it just requires a little bit of industry talk to come up with some good solutions I don't think it's impossible at all Eileen Fisher did it so with opening up our retail store I think it's great, it really challenged us into thinking about it how our retailers would think about it rather than it just being, we work in our workroom we design, other people sell it now we, we really need to come up with solutions and we love those conversations we're a bunch of geeky greenies at work, it's great you know, that's, that's what we get off on, intelligent conversation. And actually, yeah. the fashion industry is full of creative brains. If we just shifted yeah.
0: slightly our conversation and our thought patterns towards trying to find mm. more solutions in this way, mm. of course we could do it. Yeah. If you can think of that many ways to make a croc chic, yeah. then I think that you can think of new ways to reuse waste. Exactly, exactly. I mean, Crocs aren't chic anyway, soz, mate. I'm not into it. <laughs> Making yeah. the crocs embellished. I yeah. say no. Yeah, yeah, Bedazzling the croc. Mind do I like a bedazzle? So maybe I'll yeah. be into it. You're just pulling the face of the minimalist. What is
2: that? The bed- <laughs> oh, I just don't understand crocs. Maybe for my son.
0: <laughs> okay, I just want to finish up by asking you a little bit about how much you've seen this landscape change since you started eleven years ago when what you wanted to do was create this value-based brand. Back then, not many people were working in that way, right?
2: No, not at all. And um, I used to say to people, um, I've had to change the language a bit, so rather than, as things have shifted, yeah, I've had to change the language a bit since the landscape has has changed as well. So just choosing my words right. So before I would talk to people with so much passion about the Fair Trade Labelling Organisation and our workplace practices and and how we go into so much detail about everything. And, and you could see people's eyes glazing over and they'd call it free trade instead of fair trade. And and I thought, okay, I really need to adapt. This is 11 years ago and people were just kind of sort of buying apples at the little funny farmer's market store, you know. There wasn't even an organic shop. And and I just would then th- think, okay, well, I'm going to sell it as, as clothing that I'm passionate about because I'm passionate about that just as much. And now it's great because now I can do both. I still have to read people when I talk about the clothes, but now I can talk about people are now educated to understand what it means, what words are ethical means, what sustainable means. But I I need to go into a lot more depth for people because our buttons are made in Italy from recycled hemp. Our denim is made in Germany, so we, we don't work with countries that don't have workplace standards in place or a fair trade chain like India Germany is part of the EU, so we're happy to work with them. Italy is also part of the EU. They have minimum wage. So we get tax for our denim. They're nickel-free. They're also made in Germany. Our paper for our swing oh, tags. everything. Everything. Like, everything. So, And I love that. I love that. And I, the team just loves it. So, So, sorry, tell me about your, your swing tags and your packaging. Oh, uh, So the swing tags are FSC-approved paper. And it's also, as I was going to say before, it's not getting stuck. We have to individually package every single garment to protect it. You have to do it. It kills me, and you just have to do it. And um, So we used to do recycled bags, and now we're doing cornstarch bags. Oh, great. No, but now we're thinking going back into recycled plastic bags because the cornstarch bags, we don't actually have a way of recycling them in New Zealand, whereas we've got an initiative with the Sustainability Network in Wellington where we could get the recycled Plastic, then re- re-recycle it again, and they're making plastic furniture out of it. So it's just about really not being embarrassed to go, actually, this isn't working, and what is the best for the environment that we're in right now? And nothing is perfect, but having that cutting-edge conversation, which I sometimes feel like, oh, no, people expect us just to be like the be and Nindal of all answers, and I just hope that it decomposes. Oh, I don't know. And now it's like, no, actually... That's not working. We don't know what's happening with those bags. It's that life cycle again. And there's these amazing people in Wellington that are doing this, so let's do that, you know? It's constantly evolving. Constantly evolving.
0: So what, Constantly evolving. What would you say then, to finish up, would be the biggest challenges that you face when it comes to this stuff as a business? Because as you grow, does it get easier or harder? I think it's what? getting
2: easier because there are more people giving us more options now which is great and maybe we have a bigger team we're able to really look out and spend a lot of time on research to get what we need I met someone in um, at the Copenhagen Fashion Summit that's making fabric that feels like cotton poplin but it's made from orange peel
0: oh yeah I've heard about this
2: amazing pineapple used it Yes. Amazing.
0: Penatex is a wondrous thing.
2: Ama- That's a pineapple leather. Amazing. It's really clever. The, 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 I was like 100% orange peel, and it was a very high-end designer that was using it and it digitally Salvatore printing on it. Ferragamo, who were the first luxury brand to use the orange fibre, and they used it on a range of scuffs. Exactly. So I saw them hanging on the rack, and um, it literally felt like a mixture, but it maybe felt like a cotton, cotton poplin slash with a silk mix. It just felt... I didn't feel like an orange peel. <laughs> 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 I just blew my brain. I thought this is amazing amazing. And
0: actually you're right, every month there's a new innovation that can help
2: us lift our game here. And it's, maybe I'm tapping into it by going and traveling the world and, and talking to these people and opening myself up to new ideas. but it just seems to be like there seems to be something every yeah, like you said every month and it's it's really exciting for us as a brand to be able to know well, For me, you know, 11 years on now, suddenly it feels like we're at the beginning again and there's all these possibilities.
0: Thank you for listening to Wardrobe Crisis. To learn more about our guests and the issues that we've spoken about today, hop on over to my website, which is clairepress.com forward slash podcast. You can get in touch there and I really hope you will. I'd love to hear from you. And you can also find links to my social media. And finally, if you're enjoying the show, please head over to iTunes and subscribe. You know what they say, first and best dressed. Subscribers are first to find out when there's a new episode and it also helps other people discover Wardrobe Crisis, so I'd love your help with that. Because the more people who switch onto ethical fashion, the better music is by Montaigne. She recorded this special acoustic version of Because I Love You, which is from her Glorious Heights album, especially for Wardrobe Crisis. How good is that? Thank you, Montaigne. Because I love you.